You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. Good morning. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me back to Exodus chapter 2. Exodus chapter 2, we were in verses uh, 1 through 10 last week and began to see uh, Moses' birth and uh, his early upbringing. Um, So chapter 1, 400 years uh, is covered where we see the children of Israel in their uh, predicament of being in Egypt in slavery, wanting out, waiting for God to send a deliverer. Um, We see God's sovereignty in that chaos, uh, that he's the one that's in control. It's um, It's not Egypt, it's not Pharaoh, even though they're kind of the focal points of chapter one as far as it seems like they're the ones calling the shots. Um, They're not. God's in control. We know that. We see that because we know where the whole book is going. Um, Chapter two, God begins to work and move and bring his deliverer on the scene um, through Moses. And so last week we said that uh, in the midst of life's challenges and chaos, we must remember that God remains sovereign, which enables me to remain faithful to him while waiting patiently for him to work providentially for my good. And so we talked about the difference between sovereignty and his providence, that sovereignty has God being in control, that he has the right and the power to do whatever he wants. His providence is that he chooses to use that control for our good. And we saw that uh, when we believe that, it allows us to handle trials and challenges appropriately. Uh, We see Moses' parents acting out of faith and obedience to God, even in the midst of the chaos of the, um, the abortions that are taking place around them. The baby boys are to be killed. Uh, the purging that's supposed to take place to keep the population control uh, happening. And so they remain, they remain obedient in the midst of the trials. Uh, they believe that God's working for their good. Um, and they're trusting God's timing as well. And, and so we talked about how uh, if we're not careful, we'll grow resentful towards God in the midst of delays that we see, right? All these years are passing. It doesn't look like God's working at all. But I told you last week that when the, um, the worst part of the captivity hits, that's when God is most at work in this situation. Not everybody sees it. They don't all know that Moses has been born, but God is most at work during that time, and so we don't want to resent him when we see delays around us. And so I challenged you last week, when chaos hits, remember that God's in control, that he's in control for your good. So not only is God in control, he's controlling everything for your good, and his good will come to you at the right time. It'll come to you at the right time. Today we're going to see how he's also not only sovereign in our chaos, but he's sovereign over the choices that we're making as well. He's sovereign over the choices uh, that we make as well. And so we get into more of the life of Moses today, beginning in verse 11. And what we're going to see as the story unfolds is Moses attempting to lead the Israelites out of Egypt prematurely. They're not ready to go. They reject his leadership. It's not until Moses leaves and then God sends him back that now all of a sudden the people are ready to go, right? Like they're, they're, they're anxious to follow his leadership for our, for our children. Maybe you can see the correlation as I was studying. I couldn't help but think about uh, the movie Toy Story 3, right? Raise your hand, kids, if you remember Toy Story 3, right? That's when the toys end up at the daycare, right? They go into the daycare and everything's great at first, right? Like they're loving it. This is awesome, and then all of a sudden, they find out they're under the regime of the, the bear, right? Uh, Lotso is in control of that environment. He kind of brings them under his captivity. Now, Woody, the good leader that he is, tries to lead those people out of the daycare, right? He's like, come on, we're going back to Andy's house. And what do the toys say? What's their initial response? Does anybody remember? They don't want to go, do they? They're like, no, nah, we love the daycare. We're staying at the daycare. And Woody's like, I ain't staying. I'm leaving. And he leaves. And then he comes back, and the toys are like, we're going. Like, we ain't staying here any longer, right? So kids, as we go through this story, think about how that correlates a little bit there. Like, we can see Moses is there. He, he is ready to lead Israel when he's 40 years old. Like, let's get out of here. And they reject his leadership. It's not until he leaves and then comes back is Israel ready to leave Egypt, okay? So let's see how that story unfolds in chapter 2, verse 11. Now, we left off last week with verse 10. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son, and she named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. Now, 
Verse 11, we get a massive time jump because he's going to be 40 years old in verse 11. We learned that from the New Testament. We'll look at that today, but let's read from verse 11 on. It says, one day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together and he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Raoul, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Our summary sentence for today, in the midst of life's daily choices, we must remember that God remains sovereign, which enables me to make decisions meant to bring honor to him while taking comfort that when they don't, he will redeem my failures for my good. In the midst of life's daily choices, we must remember that God remains sovereign, which enables me to make decisions meant to bring honor to him while taking comfort that when they don't, He will redeem my failures for my good. For our kids, God rules and reigns for my good even when I make the wrong choices that lead to failure in life. God is in control continuing through chapter 2. In Genesis, Joseph makes the comment to his brothers. He says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good in my life, right? The the brothers are concerned that now that their their dad Jacob is dead, that Joseph's going to enact vengeance on them. Hey, you sold me into slavery, Now I'm coming for you to pay you back. And Joseph responds and says, look, you did something to me. You meant evil by it. God meant it for good. I put in my notes what I think chapter 2 helps us to see is that what you didn't necessarily mean for evil, God still means for good as well. We're going to see Moses kind of stumble here in chapter 2 as he's trying to make choices and decisions that the New Testament seems to put to me in a positive light he, he thinks he's doing what he should be doing. He thinks he's doing what God would maybe want him to do, but it, but it fails. It flops. We're going to see that God's sovereign over the failures and the flops in our life too, that when we maybe mean for good, that eventually turns into evil. Maybe it doesn't, maybe it doesn't end up good uh, initially. God means it for good in our life. He will work good in it even when we fail. That happens in Moses' life here. God works for us and in spite of us. He works for us and in spite of us. He teaches us through the failures of our own plans. God's sovereignty empowers me to move about my daily life without fear of making lasting mistakes that ruin God's plans for me or others. Let me say that again. God's sovereignty empowers me to move about my daily life without fear of making lasting mistakes that ruin His plan for me or for others. Sometimes if we're not careful, we'll elevate our choices and our decision-making to a sovereign-type level. And for some of us, that cripples us. Like, we feel like we can't make decisions at all. And then for others of us, when we make decisions that fail, we'll feel an immense amount of guilt as though we've messed something up that is, like, irreparable, right? Like, it can't be fixed. And what God's sovereignty reminds us, not just that in trials and challenges and difficulties that God's at work and that God's working good and that he's in control, God's sovereignty also reminds us that in the midst of our daily decision-making, when we're going about our business, making choices and decisions, he's still in control of those things too, right? It may feel very much like we're in control and that we're making choices and decisions. It may feel very much like we're fully responsible for the failures And now we got to figure out how to fix it. But God remains in control of those seasons of life too. Exodus 2 gives us a narrative that shows characters making choices and decisions themselves that ultimately reveal God's plan 
for all. Let me say that again. Exodus 2 gives us a narrative that shows characters making choices and decisions themselves that ultimately reveal God's plan for all. We don't see really a mention here of God in chapter 2, but he's all over it. He's all over it. Like if we think about where this story is headed, right? We think about the fact that Moses is eventually going to shepherd God's people. That's what the Bible tells us. He shepherded his people. Psalms reference this. You led us as a flock by the hand of Moses. Moses was our shepherd. You led us into the wilderness, and he cared for us there. We know that. Well, this passage helps us to see how Moses ends up in the wilderness for 40 years without the people, learning how to take care of sheep in the wilderness. Right? God's all over this story. Even in the midst of the failures and the flops of Moses, God is sovereign and in control and working it for good purposes. He works and moves in the chaos and the choices of everyday life to bring about his determined plans and purposes. Now, I told you there's a time jump here from verse 10 to verse 11, about 40 years pass. About 40 years passes from the time, of Mo- from the time Moses is born to the time Moses is shown again as an active player in God's story. We don't know really much of anything that happened in those 40 years. We can assume, based on what the New Testament tells us, that he was educated, so he went to school, he was taught, he functioned as, a, as an Egyptian prince, he lived in the palace, he would have done prince palace type things, whatever that would have looked like. For 40 years this takes place. Now let's don't be so quick to throw around that 40 year number without thinking about how long 40 years is, right? Like I'm just over 40 years old. And so I just kind of stopped and pondered and thought about how much has changed in 40 years, right? Like Uh, I think I've gone through seven presidents in my life, right? So all kinds of changes in leadership. Uh, There's been uh, times where the economy has boomed. There's been recessions that I've lived through, right? Within the past, uh, we're coming up on the three-year anniversary soon of of what we've endured with COVID, uh, which a lot of times feels like way longer than three years, right? Can you imagine, like, what, 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 what would it look like if COVID had hit in 2020 and everything shut down and we knew that for the next 40 years it was going to stay that way? Like, like, that would be hard to endure, right? Like, hey, we're going to be shut down and, and, and COVID is going to dominate for the next 40 years. Now think about that happening for 400 years. Right? Just in the last 40 years, we've seen enough change that takes place that keeps us, for the most part, positive. Right? Like presidents are coming and going, recessions come and go. Like what we endure doesn't typically last that long. You've got a whole generation that grows up here after Moses was born before he ever shows up to lead them out. I mean, Moses is 80 years old by the time he comes back. Right? Here at 40, He attempts to lead them out, and they reject him. He goes to Midian for 40 more years. It's 80 years after he's born before he comes back. A whole generation has grown up in slavery, still waiting for God to deliver, still waiting for him to come through on his promises. And they have no idea that during the 80 years, God's working and moving behind the scenes and raising up Moses. They have no idea that for 40 years, he's in the wilderness learning how to take care of sheep. That's all behind-the-scenes stuff. This is a long time that the children of Israel are having to endure their present situation. There's not Pharaohs coming and going. It's the same guy this whole time. And their condition isn't really changing. There's not a recession and then a booming economy. and they're, back. they're slaves the entire time. It's hard and it's dark for them. The reminder to us, though, is that God is always at work. And he rarely does things in a hurry. He's always at work but he rarely does things in a hurry. I think it's also important now that Moses is is on the scene and he's growing up here before us that we can see a lot of parallels between Moses and Jesus. And hopefully as we continue through Exodus, we'll see how much better Jesus is than Moses, right? Moses points us to Jesus. Think about their similarities though. Both were born to be saviors of their people. Both were rescued from an evil leader at birth. Both dwelt in Egypt for a time period. Both have decades of silent life. 
right? Jesus shows up and really begins to, to work and move and minister around the age of 30. Moses does so after, at the age of 40, but really not even until later in life, right? There's, there's these silent periods where we don't know what God's doing, but he's doing something to, to grow and prepare them. Um, they both spend 40 time periods in, will, in the wilderness. Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness. Moses spends 40 years in the wilderness. They both went to the mountain for law purposes. Think about how Moses goes to Mount Sinai to get God's law. Jesus goes to the mountain to proclaim God's law through the Sermon on the Mount. Lots of similarities. Let's jump to the New Testament real quick so I can read these passages that I've referenced already that give us a little bit deeper context to what's happening here in Exodus chapter 2, and then we'll jump into the text. Acts chapter 7, verse 17. Again, this is Stephen's sermon. We looked at part of this last week. Stephen's sermon in Acts chapter uh, 7, verse 17 says, But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt, until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. He was brought up there for three months in his father's house, and when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. He was mighty in his words and his deeds. Right? God's preparing him for what he's going to do later in life. He's, he's making him an educated man who would eventually be able to write Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy down on, on paper for us. Right? He's instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. He's mighty in his words and deeds. Verse 23, when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. All right, so that gives us a little bit more in depth. I think it helps us to see that Moses had a deliverer-type mentality when he goes to help the Hebrew that's being beaten up by the Egyptian, right? It says that he had it set in his heart. I'm identifying with these people. I'm going to lead them. I'm going to save them. They're going to respond to this. Stephen says they didn't, they didn't respond that way, but that's what he set out to do in his heart. Now, Hebrews chapter 11 gives us further insight. Hebrews chapter 11, uh, verse 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sins. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. And by faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. This passage gives us further insight as well. So Acts helps us to see what was he doing when he went out to save the Israelite? Well, he was trying to be a deliverer. Hebrews helps us to see what was he really doing when he went out to his people. He was leaving Egypt behind. He was choosing to identify with the Hebrew slaves who were the sworn enemies of Egypt. By identifying with them, he was leaving behind his old life. So we see there's a lot more at play here with the New Testament insight than just the narrative that's going on in Exodus chapter 2. This is where we begin to see, no, God is working in Exodus chapter 2. He is sovereign over Moses' choices and decisions because he's putting it in his heart, this desire to lead his people out. He's putting it in his heart to express faith that I'm not going to stay an Egyptian prince. I'm not going to inherit this, this kingdom. I'm not going to become the next Pharaoh. I'm leaving this behind. There's a greater promise that's been given to our descendants. He buys into the promises made to Abraham. All right, so let's look and see a little bit more about how God's sovereign over the choices that take place in this story. Number one, we need to choose to identify with God's people, just as Moses did. Choose to identify with God's people, 
Choose to identify with God's people. Number one, my choices should reflect my biblical hope. My choices should reflect my biblical hope. Moses knew who he was and what he believed, and it drove his actions and his associations. He knew who he was, he knew what he believed, and it drove his actions, it drove his associations. His identity was tied to God's promises. That's what these, these collective passages help us to see. Now think about how crucial Amram and Jacobed's teaching must have been to him. Maybe later in life he's able to come back and see her and she's able to continue teaching him about the promises of God. We don't know. But certainly her teaching was ingrained enough in him that he bought into the promises that were presented to him. Right? You are a child of, of Yahweh. You are a child of Abraham. You are a part of the promised nation. And he never loses sight of that. Yes, he's raised and he's growing in Egypt and God's teaching him and preparing him for ministry down the road, but he knows he's a Hebrew. And he, and he chooses to identify with that identity. At the age of 40, he makes a choice to identify with God's people over Egypt. He determines that the promises made are better than the pleasures offered. His actions then in chapter 2, the right ones, the misplaced ones, they all reveal that he prefers to be associated with the people of God versus the Egyptians. My choices should reflect my biblical hope. I would ask you, do yours. Do the choices that you make in life, the daily choices, the daily decisions that you're making, where you go, what you do, and who you do it with, is it based on your biblical hope? For our youth, and I want to tell you, for, for our youth, like I would challenge you to really dial in today because I think there's aspects of this that are so relevant to you that you can make an argument that there's parts of this that are more relevant to you than maybe anybody else in the room because I think you're faced with similar opportunities that Moses is faced with. We're going to get here into it here in a minute about the, um, the call to uh, promote justice and to defend the weak, that for your moms and dads on a daily basis, we probably don't get to have the type of opportunities that you have. At, at least especially for those of you who go to a physical school. Because I know without a doubt, because I deal with it on a daily basis, even at a Christian school, I know without a doubt that you sit at lunch tables, you are in locker rooms, you are in bathrooms where the weak are persecuted by the strong. Your moms and dads probably aren't sitting at a lunch table where people are being made fun of constantly. Maybe, but, but probably not. Some of you sit at lunch tables, some of you go to the bathroom, and, and you go to locker rooms, and you see it constantly, and you have an opportunity to stand up and to defend the weak, just as Moses does. Let me, let me challenge you to dial in and listen to us, because if there's ever a sermon that's relevant to you, it's, this one is relevant to you, because your parents might could say, Man, I don't really have those opportunities that often. Our youth, our, our, our older kids, I know you do. You have opportunities to, to choose in this type of direction. The choices that we make should reflect our biblical hope. Who we choose to associate with. Do we associate with those who are choosing to do the right thing? Do we choose to associate with those who are living for the things of Christ or the things of this world? For our youth, are you willing to step out of the Egyptian palace? Are you willing to step out of popularity? Are you willing to step out of some friend groups and say, what's happening here is wrong? What's happening here is contrary to God's promises. The things that are taking place are contrary to God's word. I'm going to step out of this, and I'm going to associate with the people who are bought into God's promises. And if you think, man, that's hard, that, that's way more difficult than when Moses did, you're kidding yourself because Moses left the greatest life of luxury that existed at that time, right? They're the world power at that time, and he's probably next in line to be Pharaoh. He had everything that he could ever want at his disposal, and he leaves the palace and says, I'm going to go live with the lowest of low. I'm choosing them over everything afforded to me. 
I mean, this is like the quarterback of the football team who's prom king, who has the girlfriend that everybody wants saying, I'm out. I'm leaving this. And I'm choosing to associate with, with the rejects, right? With the people that nobody wants to be with. Because remember, shepherds were despised and detestable to the Egyptians. Genesis 46 tells us that. They, they hated shepherds. They thought shepherds were, were ridiculous and low, and, and that's what the Israelites were. And so he says, I'm going to live with them. I'm going to be a slave. And for our youth, like you've, you've got to realize that you, you may be called to step away from friend groups, from associations, if you're willing to let the biblical hope that has been ingrained in you from mom and dad and teachers over the years, if you're going to choose to let your decision-making be based on that, it may cause you to have to leave some associations. It had Moses leaving associations. He said, I got I to go be with God's people. Number two, my choices should reflect my willingness to suffer. He understands that he can't have both lives. He can't stay in the Egyptian palace and lead Israel out of slavery. He can't claim the promises of God and stay in Egypt. He identified with the Hebrews and that makes him an Egyptian traitor. Our choices should reflect that we identify with God's people too. That we choose to let biblical hope define who we are. It drives our decision-making on a daily basis. It drives who we associate with. And we're willing to suffer as a result if that's what it brings us. Willing to step away from the pleasures of this world, willing to make sacrifices if needed to choose Christ over things that are passing away. Number two, or sorry, implication. Are we willing to embrace a level of following Christ that leads us away from aligning with the values of this world? Are we willing to embrace a level of following Christ that leads us away from aligning with the values of this world? Secondly, am I fighting to see my identity and purpose in the context of his word or this world? What's driving us? Is it God's word or the world that surrounds us. Note here that uh, Moses lived in a pretty poor environment if we think about the morals and the spiritual context, right? He had everything earthly. But think about the environment that he would have spent the bulk of his years in, right? However long he stayed with his, his Hebrew family, it paled in comparison to the amount of years spent in the palace, Right? Even if, and the, long, the longest I've ever seen a commentator believe is that maybe he spent his first 12 years with Amram and Jacobed. But the time he kind of hits his, his groove of like, now I'm kind of an independent, that's when he's thrust into like Vanity Fair. Right? Like this is when he's put into like a place where he can have anything and everything he wants. Kind of like uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and Daniel. And it's in that environment where the things that he was taught continue to drive his decision-making. He doesn't give in to the things of this world. He doesn't fall prey to it. He's still driven by the promises of God. That's what determines his decision-making. Number two, choose to identify with God's purposes and personality. Choose to identify with God's purposes and personality. We identify with his people, his purposes, and his personality. Number one, my choices should reflect controlled emotions. Now, I told you, chapter 2 is all about these choices and decisions that, decisions that are being made. Some of them are good. Some of them are right. Some of them are well-intended. But overall, Exodus chapter 2 is about Moses flopping and failing and God still being sovereign, right? Like, we don't have Moses standing in a position of victory by the end of this chapter. He's standing in a position of defeat and depression, maybe. He, this is picture where he's content to live in Midian. He's content to kind of have a family and take care of sheep. But don't forget, in his heart, he believed he was the deliverer. He was the one to rescue Israel. And that failed, right? We learned from Acts, it failed. He thought he was going to lead them out. They didn't go with him. And, and he's, he's a failure in his mind. He flopped. And yet God's still sovereign over the choices and decisions that are made here. Choices should reflect controlled emotions. Now, he's determined in his heart, I want to be with God's people. He's determined in his heart, I think God wants me to lead them out. So he goes out to the people. 
He sees their burdens, verse 11 in Exodus 2 says. And he sees the Egyptian beating the Hebrew, one of his people. Verse 12, he looks this way and that, seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and he hit him in the sand. He witnesses a brutal assault from an Egyptian taskmaster towards a Hebrew slave. He sees injustice happening. Now, we can hate injustice and we can be right for hating it, but how we respond to it is really important. Moses is pictured here as acting on this situation and killing the individual. Now, I'll be honest, I struggle with this passage because the Bible doesn't ever outright call it wrong what he did here. Just about every commentator I read called this murder, that that he murdered the Egyptian. Um, But it's different. It needs to be, I think, quantified here. What does he do? Well, well, he's acting in defense of an individual who is being beaten, and the word for, for what's happening to the Hebrew is the same word used for what Moses does to the Egyptian, implying that if left unattended, it seems like the Egyptian was going to beat the Hebrew to death which the Pharaoh wouldn't have had a problem with, right? The Pharaoh ends up having a problem with Moses killing the Egyptian. I don't think it would have caused any concern on on Pharaoh's radar um, that, that the Egyptian taskmaster had killed the Hebrew, right? So there's a part of me that looks at this and says, I mean, was this really wrong? Like... Shouldn't he step in and do it? And maybe it's because I've seen the Charlton Heston movie and, and, I, and I know what it looks like for Moses to intervene and they get into a fight, they get into a scuffle and the, day, the guy dies and it wasn't necessarily Moses' intent to do that. I don't know. The text does seem to say that he kind of looks around and wonders like, is anybody going to see this? Implying that maybe he knows it's either not right or there would be repercussions for it. But sure, there's going to be repercussions for it. You're leaving the palace and identifying with slaves. So, I would be looking around too, wondering if anybody sees this. I don't know, I don't know how wrong this was. Uh, he obviously kills him. He's obviously held accountable for it from the Pharaoh's side of things. It's not really touched on by God as far as like this being an act of, of malicious murder. Um, it seems to be in defense. It seems like as the prince of Egypt, he would have had the authority to do this. And from the Israelite piece, I mean, this is him being a patriot, right? Like, like, this is him. I mean, think about, like, for those that like movies, like, I mean, if you're thinking, like, Star Wars realm, this is him killing a stormtrooper, right? Like, we don't, we don't watch Star Wars and think, like, hmm, I wonder if Luke Skywalker should have killed that stormtrooper. No, it's like, hey, he's the bad guy. I don't know how wrong this was, right? He obviously felt like he had to cover it up. He hides him in the sand and, and tries, to, tries to put this away. The Hebrew seems to think maybe something's off with it because he says, what are you going to do, kill us? kill me like you killed the, the Egyptian taskmaster? So maybe he's just kind of throwing that in Moses' face because maybe he's saying, hey, you wanted to be our deliverer. Where have you been the last 40 years? I've been watching you in the palace. I've seen you whine and dine. Like you could have come down here 20 years ago to save us. Maybe they're rejecting his leadership because they're like, why'd you wait so long? Right? Like all of our other buddies have been killed by taskmasters. You, you now want to come down and deal with the injustice? I don't know exactly what all's going on here. I do think that maybe what's really at play here is that Moses was off when it came to God's plan and timing. He's off with the plan. He's off with the timing, okay? So that goes into number two here. Uh, My choices should reflect a commitment to God's glory. The bigger issue to me is, is not so much about him killing the Egyptian, not killing the Egyptian, murder, not murder. The bigger issue seems to be that he understood his calling to deliver Israel but he acts on his own power, which would have led to self-glory. That there's nothing here that indicates he sought God for direction and guidance about doing what he has determined in his heart he wants to do. Fast forward, and we know how intentional God is when he talks to Moses. Hey, we're going to do this, but we're going to do this in such a way where I get all the glory for it. It's going to be my mighty hand and not your craftiness that does this job, right? Like God's very clear. Once he gets a hold of Moses at the burning bush and begins to give him instructions, it's all about how my mighty hand is going to lead these people out, not you, right? It's not going to be you with this great, uh, this great betrayal where, where the Pharaoh, uh, the next in line for Pharaoh, raises up an army and defeats Egypt and walks out free where Moses could have gotten the glory. God says, no, this is going to be totally me. 
It's going to be totally me that gets the glory. So I think, I think that's part of what's going on here, part of the issue, which is a reminder to us that if we try to carry out God's work with our effort alone, we're most likely destined to fail no matter how good our intentions are. God's way of delivering Israel would not be by human force, but by divine intervention. He was going to assert spiritual and physical power over the Egyptians. He's going to make it known that he is God over all the Egyptian gods. Not just that Moses is a greater leader than Pharaoh. God's fame is going to be known because it will be his mighty hand that does the delivering, not Moses's. So as we're making choices, right, we choose to identify with God's people. We choose to keep our emotions under control. Moses seems to be a little bit out of his emotional control. He wants to bring justice to the situation. It leads to him, it leads to him killing somebody, right? It leads to him killing somebody, which probably didn't have to happen. He probably could have done it a different way where the guy doesn't die. His choice definitely needed to reflect God's glory and not his own as desires. Number three, my choices should reflect a commitment to God's timing, my choices should reflect a commitment to God's timing. Moses feels ready to lead. He assumes the people are ready to follow, but they're not. His leadership is rejected because he doesn't wait on God's instruction. I mean, for all we know, Moses doesn't even know Yahweh at this point, really, right? There, there's no reason to think that Yahweh has spoken to Moses. That happens at the burning bush, so Moses really does go into what is going to be the greatest act of deliverance in their, their people's history on his own, right? Like, hey, let's go down here, let's kill this guy, and let's get a movement, and we'll just start killing taskmasters. That's not, gonna, that's not how they're going to get out of Egypt. He hides the guy, he talks to the Hebrews. The Hebrews are like, nah, we're not following you. Like, what are you going to do, kill us? Who made you our ruler? Moses was afraid. He thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. Moses fled from Pharaoh, stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Moses should have waited for the guidance of the Lord to move in this direction. You could also argue that Israel should have been better prepared to respond to God moving in response to their prayers too. Right? I mean, they've been praying for hundreds of years. Like, God, give us a deliverer. Give us a deliverer. Get us out of here. Get us out of here. Moses shows up and says, hey, the implication is, I'm your deliverer. And they're like, nah, not you. Right? Woody's like, toys, let's go. Let's get out of the daycare. Toys are like, nah, we're not going with you. Remember what you tried to do with Buzz? We're not, we're not following you out of here. Right? They're like, nah, we're, we're rejecting your leadership. I mean, think about it. They've been praying for the deliverer. Get us out of here. Moses is like ready to deliver and they reject his leadership, right? Our choices should reflect a commitment to God's timing. And then number four, my choices should reflect justice and reconciliation. My choices should reflect justice and reconciliation. I told you, I think Exodus 2 is full of choices and decisions, some good and some that are just misplaced, Right? I mean, Hebrews and Acts highlights Moses in a positive light. He determined, I'm not going to be Pharaoh's daughter. That's not going to be my lasting identity. Yes, I've been that for a while, but I'm one of God's people. I'm a Hebrew. I identify with the slaves. I'm, I'm with them. It's said in his heart, I'm going to lead them out, right? He attempts to do that. It doesn't work. It fails. They don't respond to his leadership. But he is working and moving and acting in such a way where you could maybe make a great argument. He is well-intended with his actions. They fail. They flop. They don't work out as he wanted them to. But he, but he seems to be moving in a direction where he's saying, God's promises, not this world. Right? Promises and not pleasures. And then we certainly see, I think, in the context of this passage, what, what should really be a part of our character, because this is part of God's personality, right? He's a, he's a God who's controlled with his emotions. Moses doesn't reflect that very well, right? Um, God is slow and patient and kind and long-suffering. When he does move and act, even in wrathful ways, it's a calculated response to the actions that are before him. He's not like the worldly gods who get a quick temper and blow up. That's not, that's not what our God's like. The other part of the personality of our God is that he is committed to justice and reconciliation. And that's what Moses does reflect well here. He does step in and intercede. And Hebrews talks about him 
avenging this guy, or maybe it's the Acts passage, but either one, one of them talks about him avenging this Hebrew who was being hurt, right? Then we see these women who show up, and it seems like this is just a part of their life, right? So for our middle schoolers, for our high schoolers, like maybe you've seen some kids who, who are just constantly picked on and bullied to the point where it's just like normal part of life for them. That's what it seems like for these seven daughters who show up at the well to get water. You know how I know that? Because their dad says, why are you guys back so early? Like, normally you run into those dudes that, like, give you a hard time and keep you from getting back on time. Like, you have to basically dish out water for them, and then you get your own water. Which calls into question why dad didn't go down there and fix that for him to begin with, right? Like, like Roel, who's also known as Jethro, like, why didn't he go down there and, and fend for his daughters? I don't know. But Moses does, right? He's sitting by this well. Everybody shows up to get water, the, the girls and these shepherds. And Moses steps in. Hey, lesson learned number one, he doesn't kill these dudes, right? So, so he's, he's controlling his emotions a little bit better here. He's already learned lesson number one from God. He, he steps in and drives them away, which again is maybe how he could have handled the taskmaster situation, right? He drives them away. He saves these girls and then he serves them. Man, we're starting to see some character traits that are going to be important when he leads Israel into the wilderness. He's going to be a servant leader. He's going to be a shepherd who takes care of his people, who fends for his people, and serves his people. He doesn't expect to be served. Now, again, this is crazy because this is a guy who's been served his whole life, right? Like the environment he's coming from, and this is proof that you don't have to be a product of your environment. You can shape your environment. You don't have to be a product of it. He's grown up where he's always been served, you would have thought this would be the last thing that he would have thought to do, to serve seven women in a culture at a time where that was kind of un, 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 unheard of. Because even they're kind of shocked. They go home and tell dad, dad, you're not going to believe this. This guy, like, uh, he saved us, fend the people off, and he served us. And I love what dad's response is. is like, and you left him? Like, you're all single, right? Like, why didn't you bring that guy home to eat? Because one of you needs to marry a guy like this. Like, we don't hear about these guys around here. Like, I want to marry you guys off. Like, where, 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 why didn't you bring him home, right? But that's what they, that's what they say. They're like, man, you won't believe his dad. Like, he, he fended for us. He saved us, and, he, and then he served us. And, and Jethro Roll says, go get him. Like, let's bring him home. Let's have, let's have bread with him. Moses' failures, or let me say this. Uh, what I've been taught should drive me more than how I see others acting. Let me say that again. What I've been taught should drive me more than how I see others acting. Moses shows compassion in spite of the Egyptian influence. Whatever his mom and dad, Hebrew mom and dad, taught him that carried more weight in his mind than all the people in Egypt acting totally contrary to that. He would have seen Egyptians beating Hebrews. He would have seen Egyptians demanding to be served. But what he was taught looked different than that. And he lived according to what he was taught versus what he saw. Again, for our youth, you have been taught well. You've been taught well here at this church. You've got youth leaders who teach you well consistently. You've got parents who teach you well too. And then you leave the house and you go see people act differently than that teaching. I know. People that name the name of Christ, people that don't name the name of Christ, you see people who act differently. You hear things like the golden rule, treat other people the way you want to be treated. And then you go to school and you see everybody do the opposite of that. They all treat people the way that, that, that is contrary to God's word. Let me tell you, what you're taught has to drive what you do far more than what you see around you. Moses would have been in an environment where he would have saw the contrary, but he lives differently. He shows a commitment to those who are suffering, those who are mistreated. He even desires to reconcile for people when it's appropriate. He tries to get the two Hebrews who are arguing and tries to bring reconciliation there. He's a peacemaker. We talked about him learning from his first encounter. He reacts more favorably towards the shepherds by simply driving them away. He doesn't kill them. He shows servant leadership towards the women afterwards, unexpected by them due to the culture at that time. Our choices should reflect similar desires, similar character traits. We should reflect justice and reconciliation with the people that we encounter. The implication for us here. My choices should reflect these things, but God will always redeem them when they don't. Our choices should reflect controlled emotions, 
a commitment to God's glory, a commitment to God's timing, justice and reconciliation. That's what we should be doing on a daily basis. There's not a one of us in here that does that right every single time. Every single one of us is going to have flops and failures today. Because we're going to be faced with so many choices and decisions. How do I act here? How do I react here? Sometimes we're going to get it right. Sometimes we're going to get it wrong. The hope and encouragement extended to us is that God redeems the times when we don't get it right. Because he redeems Moses' flops and failures here. Look at some of the ways that he redeems them. Moses' failures perhaps result in a delayed delivery, right? Because we know he ends up here for 40 years. He spends an additional 40 years in the Midianite wilderness before returning to save Israel. He seems content to reside in the failure. Maybe he even expects God to raise up a different deliverer for Israel. He probably thinks he was wrong when he assumed he was the deliverer. But look how God works. He works good in the midst of his failed emotions and his failed timing. It starts by the people he encounters. You may not remember this, but uh, he encounters here people that are really distant relatives. He could have encountered anybody. He actually encounters people who come from Abraham's line. Um, Jethro's family, Rule's family, uh, they're identified as Midianites, right? They come from the fourth son of Abraham via his second wife, Keturah. We learn about this in Genesis 25 too. What does that, what does that matter? What does that mean? He's, he's encountering people who know the promises of God to Abraham. God sovereignly directs him to these people. They seem to have the teachings of Abraham still ingrained in them, which probably prepares him 40 years later to encounter Yahweh at the burning bush. He's with the right people, even in his flops and failures. God directs him specifically to these people. God preps him to lead Israel by giving him a family to lead, giving him sheep to tend to. God uses the next 40 years to raise up a man who is perfect to deliver Israel. But it's a man who ended up in this context by getting ahead of God's plan. Acting on his own initiative, which would have led to his own glory, not waiting on God's timing, at times being out of control with his emotions. He's got well-intended you know, desires maybe, but it flops, it fails. But the hope and encouragement to us is that we do the exact same thing a lot of times. Our emotions get out of control. We have well-intended uh, means and, and, and they don't turn out well. What we didn't mean for evil that still maybe results in evil, God still means for good. He still means it for good. Lots of choices and decisions happening here. God is still the one who's in control, not Moses. Moses wasn't in control. He doesn't fall out of control by, by his failures here. God is still in control. God puts him exactly where he needs him to prepare him. I put in my notes here, God doesn't waste our time. He often prepares us for the next chapter of life with the present chapter's experiences. Let me say that again. God doesn't waste our time. He often prepares us for the next chapter of life with the present chapter's experiences. Going back to our summary sentence, in the midst of life's daily choices, we must remember that God remains sovereign, which enables me to make decisions meant to bring honor to him, while taking comfort that when they don't, he will redeem my failures for my good. We need to make choices and decisions that reflect these things we've talked about today. But there's going to be times when we fail to do that rightly. But we don't have to panic and think, oh my goodness, I've undone God's plan. No, God's still the one that's in control. He's in control of your choices, your decisions. He uses those for good purposes. The application, number one, God's word must shape my choices more than the worldly environment I reside in. God's word must shape my choices more than the worldly environment I reside in. Youth, you got to hear that because a lot of you are in a worldly environment. You got to press into God's word and make sure that his word is driving your decision making, not the people who you associate with in the world. Number two, God's sovereignty puts my failures in proper perspective. He can still work good through me. God's sovereignty puts my failures in proper perspective. Again, some of us fall into this state of like discouragement that, oh man, we've messed up and now, now it can't be fixed. And you're not the sovereign. You're not the sovereign of your life. God is. 
God takes as our flop. He takes our flops. He takes our failures. He fixes them. He uses them for good purposes. I put in my notes, I just jotted this down. My failures follow God's plans. My failures follow God's plans. We're going to see as we continue through this book, Moses failed, and God's going to use it. He's going to use it as part of his big plan to rescue Israel. Let's pray together. God, we love you. We thank you for being the type of God that you are, a God who's in control of his emotions. We thank you that you're a God of emotion, though, because that's a, that means that you're a God who loves us and cares for us. You're a God who shows kindness to us. We, we love and need the fact that you grow angry towards sin and that you have a desire for justice. God, we're thankful that all of that together, is, it's, it's under control. That when you respond and when you move and when you act, it's calculated, it's right, it's good. God, we're thankful that you're a God who makes things right. Because you're a God of justice. You're a God of reconciliation. You've made a way for us to be reconciled. You sent the better Moses. You sent Jesus. You sent Jesus who stepped away from his palace to be a rescuer as well. But he did it when the fullness of time had come. He did it according to your timing. He did it for your glory. God, thank you for sending us a better deliverer. Lord, help us to learn from what we've seen today in Exodus chapter 2 that as we seek to make choices and decisions, as we seek to align ourselves with your people, as we seek to respond in just ways when we see people being mistreated. There's going to be times where we make mistakes. There's going to be times where as we seek to parent our kids, our emotions are out of control and we, we react wrongly. We yell at our kid or, or, or we, we react in a way that we're ashamed of later. God, help those mistakes, those flops, not to cripple us as though you can't still work and use us. God, help us to see that you're sovereignly in control when our choices and decisions don't reflect rightly. Help us to take comfort in the fact that you work good in the midst of our failures. We thank you for the assurance of that. Lord, help us as we go about this week to be driven by the promises that we see in your word and not the pleasures that are offered to us around us. For those of us that find ourselves in environments this week where the weak are being persecuted, Lord, help us to defend them Help us to take opportunities to be strong for them. Lord, help us to, uh, to fend for them. Help us to drive those away who would cause harm. Give us the, the power and the resolve to do that. Lord, help us to be willing to suffer when we need to suffer because we associate as your people. We thank you and praise you for the assurances that are given to us in this chapter. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.